Malachi 1, 6 through 14. A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts to you? O priests, who despise my name? But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? And now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is, its food, may be despised. But you say, what a weariness this is, and you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick, and this you bring as your offering? Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. You may be seated. The Father Heart of God is the, our current teaching series. We're working our way through the book of Malachi, last book in the Old Testament. And uh, this weekend's message is titled, Worship Him. Malachi chapter 1, verses 6 through 14 is what was just read. I would invite you to turn to that in your Bibles. We will be unpacking uh, those verses. Grab your sermon notes also. You'll see an intro, part of the intro there. This is true about everybody on this planet. These statements are true about everyone. Everyone here, everyone out there, all over the world. You are what you love. You are what you love. You worship what you love. You talk about what you love. And you might not love what you say you love. That's, that's the dilemma within all our hearts as it relates to God. And uh, let me ask you this question. If you were accused of being a, a wholehearted worshiper of God a fully devoted follower of Christ, a Christian, uh, someone who finds more pleasure in God than anyone or anything else, would there be enough evidence to convict you? If I were to watch your life, what would that reveal to me about what's most important to you? So we started the teaching series last uh, weekend by saying that if you only knew the Father heart of God for you, 
If you only knew what he thinks about you, how he feels about you, what he wants to do in and through your life, (laughs) it would change everything, believe me. And so oftentimes we doubt that, and it creates all sorts of problems in our lives. But if you only knew the Father heart of God for you, it would change everything. You would love him. We talked about that last weekend. If you didn't get a chance to, if you weren't here, didn't hear it, go online, listen to it. It's really an important part of where we're going in this teaching series. You would love him. This weekend we're talking about worship him. Next weekend we'll talk about listening to him. You would listen to him. Now let me uh, give you a little background here. God's people have returned to the promised land from Babylonian captivity. So they were exiles. The new king now has given them permission to return to the land. They have rebuilt their temple. They have rebuilt the walls around the city. But what's, what's unfortunate here is that their experience doesn't meet their expectations. Remember last weekend, as I said, when we have uh, expectations that are up here, kind of high in our life, as it relates to marriage or parenting or the new job we have or any number of things, and then our life experiences come in down way below that, what is this gap called? It's called disappointment. It's called disillusionment. It's called despondency. And what's fascinating about this uh, as it relates to these, these people, and, and this is the lesson we talked about last week, is that unresolved disillusionment, we all have disillusionment in our life from time to time, but if we don't resolve it, unresolved disillusionment can lead to spiritual apathy and cynicism. And that's the condition of the people that he's speaking to. And they're very cynical because you can hear by how they respond to him when, when God speaks to them, makes a statement Like we saw last week, I love you. Well, how do you love us was their response. And you're going to continue to see that throughout this book. So apathy and cynicism. And so Malachi is calling the people back to the covenant love of God. If you only knew the Father heart of God for you. He's calling them back to that. In fact, the word covenant is used six times in this book. So it's really an important Important topic. And so these are God's final instructions to prepare us for the coming of Jesus at Christmas. And so the, uh, the text can be outlined like this. You can see there on your notes. It starts off with an accusation. So Malachi makes an accusation. The accusation is half-hearted worship. You see that in verse 6. And then he repeats that in verse 12. So that's kind of the pattern. He makes the statement and then he repeats it further down in the text. So it goes from accusation, half-hearted worship, to the evidence. He gives evidence for their half-hearted worship. They're not giving their best uh, in verses 7 through 9, and then he repeats that in verse 13. So he goes from accusation, half-hearted worship, evidence, not giving your best, to here's his judgment. This is God's judgment. Your worship is in vain. And he makes that clear in verse 10, and then he repeats that in verse uh, 14a, last verse, the first half of the last verse, and then he finishes up, so he goes accusation, evidence, judgment, and then here's his rationale as it relates to worship. He basically says our worship should be as glorious as the one we worship, and he makes that statement clear in verse 11 and then repeats it in verse 14b, the, the second part of the last verse. So that's where we're headed with our study. Let's, let's start with uh, prayer once again. Let's ask for God's help as we study his word. 
and apply it to our lives. So, Father God, you are indescribably great and unimaginably good, and being a wholehearted worshiper of you is life's most satisfying reality. We confess that our, our sinful tendency is to exchange the truth of you for a lie and worship and serve created things more than you, our creator. And we know that the key to change is not the acts of the will, not trying harder, but the loves of the heart. And so we pray that through the study of your word and the work of your Holy Spirit, reorder, reorder the loves of our hearts so that we will love and worship you above all. We pray these things in Jesus' beautiful name and everyone said... Amen. So take a look at the accusation here. That's your first fill-in-the-blank, half-hearted worship. He makes this accusation. Verse 6, he says, A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, that's where we get that idea of father, heart of God. He's, this is God speaking. Where's my honor? And if I am a master, I'm the creator of the heavens and the earth, where's my fear? says the Lord of hosts, to you, O priest, who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? There's that cynicism and that apathy. And so the normal response, a healthy response to this would be for them to say, what, we've despised your name? Oh no, we would never want to do that. Tell us, how can we correct that? But they don't do that. Well, how have we despised your name? That's more of their attitude. And why does he address the priest first? He's addressing all the people, but he's addressing the, the priest first because they're the leaders. He addresses the priest first because they should be leading the way in wholehearted worship to God, but they're not. This, this is what I think the point that we can draw from that is that every marriage, every family, every organization, every church rises or falls upon its leadership. And in looking for a church, you're going to want to be a part of a church that has leaders who not only stir your heart for Christ, they don't make it about themselves, but they make it about Christ, but also that you want to emulate them. You look at their life and you want to live out the Christian life as they are living out the Christian life. Of course, you've got to be close enough to them to be able to see their lives. So it's kind of hard to do that with a, with a TV pastor or watching a, a big screen if you're not really in touch with the leadership there. And that's part of just, that's just healthy. You want to know that this church, if you're part of Desert Breeze, that, that we are healthy. We have a healthy leadership and we regularly point to Jesus and make it about him. And so that's, that's part of it. And we have wholehearted worship. I believe that the, the leaders should be the best worshipers in the house every weekend. Us, as we lead the way, we say, follow us as we follow Jesus. And, and so that's part of that. Then he uses the word honor. You don't honor me. The, word, the Hebrew word is glory. It means weight, significance, and importance. In other words, my relationship with you, your relationship with me carries no weight, no significance, no importance. You don't honor me. And then he also says, not only do you not honor me, but you don't fear me. And uh, this is not the fear a prisoner has for his torturer, but a fear of a beloved son who loves his father and doesn't want to offend him or let him down. It is a fear born of utmost reverence, awe, and adoration. 
And then Malachi repeats the accusation in verse 12. If you have your Bibles, you can look. It says, but you profane it when you say that the Lord's table, the place of offerings, is what he's talking about there, is polluted, and its, uh, its fruit, that is, its food, may be despised. And I was just lowering the standards of worship. No, nah, it doesn't matter whether you come to church or not. And eh, you don't need to be that energetic about your worship and expression to God. And they're just kind of lowering the standard. And he says that's very profane. Now, what does that mean to be profane? Profane means to, to make something that is sacred, to take something that is sacred and make it common. Take something sacred and make it common. For instance, um, if uh, some of you ladies have a china cabinet, and um, my wife has one, and um, I don't know why we have it because we never eat from any of the, the china, but you use it typically for special occasions, but that's never happened for a while. And, uh, but anyway, you bring it out for special occasions, but imagine that you have some really, really expensive fine china, maybe worth hundreds of thousands of dollars been passed on from generation to generation to you. Would you take that fine china and let your kids play in the sandbox with it? Well, see, that would be taking something very sacred and, and making it profane, just common. Or would you let your, your dog or cat eat from it? Some of you out there are saying, yeah, probably. <laughs> you have way too much value on that animal, okay? It's like, no, of course not. I can replace that pet. <laughs> okay, sorry. I, I promise not to say things like that, but I already did. We just barely started. Hopefully it doesn't get worse. And so, where am I? Oh, we're talking about being profane. And so being profane is to take something sacred and make it common. I mean, that's what we've done with our sex and sexuality in our culture today. Something very sacred. And we've turned it into something very profane, very common. And that's what he's saying that they're doing. Um, it's very profane. So think about this. So he's challenging them. He's coming to them. And he's actually dealing with the inner essence of worship. He says, you guys don't honor me. You don't fear me. And you profane my name. And uh, here's your next fill in the blank on your notes. God through Malachi begins with the inner essence of worship and then works out to the more public expressions of worship. And that's what he's starting with. Where's your heart? I love Matthew 15, 8 through 9. Jesus says, this people honors me with their lips. So they honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. It's empty. It's meaningless. There's nothing to it. They're just going through the motions. They've made something very sacred, very profane, common. Oh, yeah, we got to go to church. Oh, yeah, we sang some praise songs. Oh, yeah, I got to read my Bible. No big deal. It carries no weight, significance, and importance. That's, that's what he, he's talking about here. These people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And so here's the next uh, fill in the blank. You can do all kinds of good deeds and attend many church services and not worship. See, if your worship 
is all external and nothing is happening in your heart toward God, then it, then it isn't worship. By the way, don't confuse, and this is what I often uh, come across when people come and visit Desert Breeze, is that they confuse the form, the form of worship with the function of worship, the inner essence of worship. And um, form meaning, uh, we, we take on a form here. Uh, I typically, for the most part, wear shorts up here, which is very unusual for for many people come in and go, oh my goodness, I can't believe the pastor wears shorts. And, uh, and I've got my long pants on now because it, it dropped below 80. And, uh, <laughs> and I'm a desert rat. And, uh, but we wear shorts. I wear shorts. And then we have kind of a coffee bar atmosphere. I got a coffee bar when you walk in the door. And we have uh, music that's guitar driven. Yes. And, and then you might have a church, you could attend a church. I know people that attend a church where there's stained glass, organ music, and the pastor wears a robe. Which one of those two are more sacred? Of course, me wearing shorts. Okay, okay, I said that jokingly because neither, their form What's most important that whatever form you have, that you have the inner essence of worship happening. You understand the function. Now, this is what's fascinating when you study through the Old and New Testament, particularly the New Testament. The New Testament is stunningly silent about, the, about form. Stunningly silent about form and very loud about function. So here's the inner essence of worship. It's on your notes there. The inner essence of worship is a right understanding of God, that would be truth, and a right valuing of his supreme worth. So it's a right understanding. It starts out intellectual, and then it moves to this existential experience of God. So right understanding of God, that's truth, and a right valuing of his supreme worth. So truth in spirit. Maybe you're familiar with John 4, 23 through 24. I memorized these verses a number of years ago. They're really great verses to memorize, but it's in the context of Jesus with the woman at the well. You guys familiar with the story there? She had had five husbands, and finally she gave up on that whole marriage thing, and she was just living with the sixth guy. And it was evident that she was trying to find satisfaction in life through men. And so Jesus comes and talks to her, and, and he basically says, drink of this water, you're going to be thirsty again. You're going to be thirsty again. It doesn't matter how many men you have, you'll never be satisfied, is what he was saying. But drink of the water that I give you, and you will never, ever thirst again. What you're looking for is found in me. And then the rest of the chapter, they talk about, he begins to talk about worship, because I think that, that's what worship is. Worship is about finding your deepest satisfaction in Christ, that you find him more desirable, more satisfying than anything in this world. And so he talks about worship, and, and they get into this kind of back and forth a little bit about, she says, well, your people say that you should worship on this mountain, and we believe that we should worship on this mountain. And so they get back and forth, and she says, no, 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 it's not, it's not form, it's not place, it's, it's about the heart. And he says, but the hour is coming, and now here, when the true worshipers, notice he makes that distinction, the true worshipers, there's false worshipers, we fit into one of those two categories, true worshipers or false worshipers. 
But the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. That's that's an amazing thought. The Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is the original initiator of love. Before you ever began wanting him, he was pursuing you. He's coming after you. And he's seeking, he's seeking us. He's seeking out true worshipers. And, uh, and then it goes on and says, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So what is this spirit and truth? Well, truth, truth would be we need to worship God consistent with how he has defined himself according to his word. It also means that there's only one way we can have access to God, and that's through Jesus. Jesus said in 14.6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. So when people say, oh, I have a relationship with God, but if they haven't come through Jesus, they don't have a relationship with God. It's the only way that you can worship him. But the truth would also mean just uh, with all honesty and openness to God. And that kind of goes along with the spirit. Why would he say spirit? Because our spirits, we're dead spiritually until the Holy Spirit makes us alive. And he takes the truth of who Jesus is and what he's done and he makes it real to our hearts. And we begin to adore him and love him and worship him. So spirit is, so we're talking truth, head, spirit, heart. So it goes back to what we were saying. The inner essence of worship is right understanding of God, right valuing of his supreme worth. It is seeing what God is worth and giving to him what he is worth. By the way, uh, I've had people ask me this question that, uh, what if I don't really feel like it? I'm just like, I've had a really terrible week and I just don't feel like worshiping God. Well, here's what you've got to keep in mind. You don't feel your way into beliefs. You believe your way into your feelings. You've got to really start looking at your mind. What are the things that are dominating your thoughts throughout this week? What's going on there? Start, the battle is in our minds, in our hearts. And uh, you don't feel your way into beliefs. You believe. You believe. That's it. When I'm feeling out of you know, crazy, uh, I, I go to God's word. There's almost a recalibrating that happens in my heart. And then before long, my heart's being stirred. I'm saying, why, why am I so stressed out? What, why would I respond like that? That's crazy. That's just insane. Because what, he, what is he doing? He's reordering my loves. He's reordering my heart. So I take those negative feelings to him, and then he helps me. And I reorder that. And he's, he begins to reorder that. Now, let me just say this about our theology. If your theology is not making you sweeter, more loving to God and more loving to others, then you either have really, really bad theology or your theology is not moving you to doxology. You have it all here, but you're not worshiping him because this is I'm convinced of this the deeper the theology the higher the doxology that's worship and the more soul satisfying and life liberating the psychology you're going to be really 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 healthy the deeper the theology the higher the doxology oh my goodness that's what needs to be happening that's the inner essence of worship As you ponder the goodness of God, it should come from your head down into your heart and begin to stir your soul. And um, 
So we worship God authentically when we know him accurately, that's our theology, and treasure him appropriately, that's our doxology. Let me give you another illustration here. Job says in Job 23, 12, I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my daily bread. So what is he doing there? He's worshiping. So worshiping means treasuring. So I've treasured, I've, I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my daily bread. So when I treasure something, I longingly look at it, for example, in the store window or magazine or on the internet and then, and then think about how great it would be to own it. I ponder its virtues. I talk to my friends about how great it is and then I go out and buy it. That's treasuring something and that kind of treasuring should be taking place in our lives regularly. That's what worship looks like. Worship is treasuring God. It is pondering his worth until that truth descends from your mind and stirs your emotions and moves you to action. So I was thinking about this as it related to my own life and in our lives, and so, so let me give you some examples of what that looks like in our life. If you're t- spending time basking in his love, basking in his love should eliminate fear in your life otherwise it isn't worship it's all here in your head so as you begin to realize and it dawns on you oh my goodness I have never been more loved by him he's got me covered he's going to take care of me that should chase away the fears in your life Sometimes we have to stay at it for a while before it does chase away those fears. And it's very supernatural. We've got to pray that the Holy Spirit will make those truths alive to our heart. I believe that's part of what the Spirit-filled life is all about. And and so that's, that's an example. How about this? Pondering his wisdom should eliminate worry. Resting in his sovereignty should eliminate being a control freak. Because he's in control, you just rest in him. Gets rid of all manipulation and control efforts. You just rest in him. Reflecting on his mercy should eliminate bitterness. Enjoying his beauty should eliminate covetousness and envy or it's not worship. So that's the inner essence of worship. Taking the truths, an accurate understanding of God and appropriate valuing of his supreme worth in your heart, from your head down into your heart, and then it works its way out through your life. Believe me, that will transform your life. And so uh, here's, his accusation is half-hearted worship. Now he gets to the evidence. Let me give you some evidence. So he's actually, when you look at this, he's moving from the inner essence of worship now to the outer essence of worship by what, by what they say and what they do. And uh, so the evidence is not giving your best. So accusation, half-hearted worship, evidence, not giving your best. So we finished up reading 6b. He says, but, but you say, how have we despised your name? How have we despised your name? Which literally means that idea, means trampling on the person and work of Christ Jesus. We trample on that. We despise it by our lack of honor and fear, as he said in those first few verses. And then he explains how, he says, so how have we despised your name? This is his answer, verses 7 through 9. By offering polluted food upon my altar, 
But you say, well, how, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. So notice what, that's, what they're saying. By saying, this is what they're saying. So the words of their mouth are revealing the inner essence of what they're truly worshiping. By saying that the Lord's table may be despised, when you offer, this is what they're doing, when they offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor? Says the Lord of hosts. And now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us with such a gift from your hand. Will he show favor to any of you? Says the Lord of hosts. So they were offering ceremonially unclean and blemished animal sacrifices which were strictly forbidden by the Lord in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. Now, now keep in mind, anytime we talk about these Old Testament sacrifices, the Old Testament sacrifices all point to the ultimate sacrifice. Who's the ultimate sacrifice? Jesus, yeah. So this is just another picture of Christ, of what he's talking about here. And uh, he was the perfect sacrifice. Jesus is the ultimate and final temple priest and sacrifice. So everything in the Old Testament is pointing to Jesus. It's, the whole book is about Jesus, okay? Old Testament, New Testament. So they had the audacity to offer to God what their governor as a form of taxation would never have accepted from them. And so they were more fearful of the governor's rejection than of God's. And then he repeats the evidence. So he's made the accusation, here's the evidence, he repeats the evidence here, verse 13. But you say, what a weariness this is. And you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. So that would be like going and serving, oh, I gotta serve in the children's ministry today. Oh, boy, I don't know. We can't, I don't know if we can afford this, but we're going to give. Yeah, okay, if we have to. The Bible says we have to. That's, what, that's their attitude. What a weariness is this. That's, that's their attitude. And you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick, and this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? So what would this be like? This would be like you showing up to a church potluck with roadkill, okay? <laughs> they would not appreciate that. That's what they're doing. So the inner essence of worship is knowing God accurately and valuing him appropriately. Look at this next uh, couple fill in the blanks in your notes. The inner essence of worship will be visible by the fruit of our lips and the fruit of our deeds by what we say and what we do. That's what he's revealing to them. So your, your lack of honor and fear and, and, and despising my name, trampling upon my name is seen by what you say and by what you're doing and how you're living out your life. Hebrews 13, 15 through 16. It's on your notes. It's also up on the screen. This is what it says, through him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That's part of worship. He's talking about worship here. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. So if you are a true worshiper of God, it will overflow your lips, what you say, and your life and what you do. 
You guys know when I, what I mean when I say lip-smacking? You guys know what I mean by that? When I say lip-smacking? I use that a lot of times. I, I fail to define it. But lip-smacking is, is like this. Friday night, Nancy and my sister Aloha spent four hours making pumpkin loaves in, in our kitchen, driving me insane. And it took two and a half hours before they even gave me a bite of any of that. It's like, come on. Share the, share the wealth here. And uh, it was about two and a half hours into that, uh, I was able to get a taste of that, and I, had, I, I was lip-smacking. I was lip-smacking. It was this, mmm, this is good. This is the best pumpkin loaf I've ever had. And I think it was, until the next one. And... Uh, so that's lip smacking. We do it with food. We do it with restaurants. We hear it, uh, you know, with football teams. Hey, hey, did you see how my team played this last weekend? Woohoo! Man, they're good. I think they're going to go all the way to the Super Bowl. So that's lip smacking. We do it with good movies. We do it with the weather. We do it with vacations. Here's my uh, struggle: is that I hear very few Christians doing it in regards to Christ. And what that tells me is that they're either afraid to do that or they're not having that inner essence of worship really happening in their life. Because if it is, it will be seen in what they say and what they do. I was uh, the great example of, of, of this, of lip smacking. Uh, my wife and I was invited to uh, one of our life groups this last week and they were doing their Thanksgiving meal and there was a couple that was sitting at our table and <laughs> it was beautiful because they were lip smacking about what a blessing it is to serve our children and both of them serve in our, in our children's church and they were beaming, oh my goodness, this is the most amazing thing, this is, this is out of this world, we can't believe how blessed we are, we get to go over there every week and we serve and we love it, these kids are like our grandkids, they're an older couple, and, and as they were talking, I was like, man, I'm gonna, I wanna, I wanna, I'm gonna volunteer for, for the kids' ministry. I knew that I couldn't because I'm usually up here, but, uh, but I was just like, it stirred me. They were, they were lip-smacking about the, how wonderful it is. That's good. That's healthy. I could see that they're doing it out of a heart that's filled with the beauty and the glory of Christ. They're honoring God. They, they have a fear of God. They're not despising his name. They're honoring his name in, in, in every way. And, uh, and, and, it, and it should be normal for us to lip smack. Uh, Psalm 34, 8 says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. That's lip smacking. Oh, see, see, this is what we should be sharing with our kids, especially our lost kids, kids that are wayward, gone south, and our friends that don't give a rip about Christ, and, and even those that do. We should be saying, Oh, taste. <laughs> Taste and see that the Lord is good. That should be coming from our lips. The things that we're talking about should be about him and how great he is. Here's what should be coming out of our, out of our mouth. Matthew uh, 12, 34 says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So that's a fact. You're going to talk about, remember what I said? So we, we are what we love. We worship what we love. We talk about what we love. And we may not love what we say we love. And if you say you love 
Christ, you will be talking about him. It will be the overflow of your life in what you say and what you do. So here's what, it should, what should be happening when we gather, when we hang out, uh, when you're talking and interacting, with, particularly with Christians, is that as you share, man, this last week I had so much worry and anxiety, it was overwhelming, but I spent just a few moments with my Savior and it recalibrated my heart. I was reminded of, of this inner peace that he gives us, a peace that goes beyond all understanding. As I was reading through Philippians chapter four, peace, and he began to give me a peace. I don't know where it came from. I know it came from him, but man, it was overwhelming, and I loved it, and I need it. See, that kind of language stirs up people's hearts for Christ. And uh, it, it might go like something like this, guilt and shame. Every once in a while, I have this overwhelming guilt and shame over my past. But then as I was spending time taking it to the Lord this last week, he reminded me of a verse in Psalm 103 that as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed your transgressions from you. Bam! The Holy Spirit used that in my life and lit my heart on fire and set me free once again from those thoughts of guilt and shame I know that the enemy was trying to pound me with. And brought freedom to my life. Or it could go something like this, anger, temper. Man, sometimes I don't manage my heart appropriately. And man, it gets me into trouble. But as I walk with Christ, oh, he gives me a patience. He gives me a love. He gives me a kindness that otherwise I wouldn't have. Or emptiness and aimlessness. He's given me purpose in life. Grief, comfort and joy. Poor health, strength to go on. Loneliness. I felt so lonely this last week, but he reminded me, I will never leave you or forsake you. So those would be the things that would be normal conversation. Now, it's not going to be, you know, you can't give what you don't have. And if you don't have that happening in your life, it's not going to come out of your mouth. And so you don't just try to force it. You, you fill your heart up with him. You spend time worshiping him, treasuring him, realizing what you have in him, and it, and it begins to change you. Listen to me. Don't hide the wellspring of your life. People need to hear and see what's happening in your life. Uh, John chapter 4, remember the woman at the well? Remember what happened to her when she had this encounter with Christ? She was stoked. She was so excited. She went home to her hometown, and this is what basically she said. Come and see a man who knows everything about me and loves me. Simple transparency and point to Jesus. It's that, that easy. It's just the overflow of your heart. I mean, you're, you're walking in it. You're living it. You're experiencing that sweetness of who he is and what he's done for you. So the fruit of our lips, which would be praise, not only completes our joy, but it, it is also inner health made audible. The fruit of our deeds is, is giving of, of your time and your talent and your treasure to your church family so that uh, more and more people can know him, know Christ. Look at this next verse. It's Romans 12, 1. It's up on the screen there. And so Paul has spent 11 chapters talking about the mercies of God. And believe me, they are breathtaking. They are out of this world. And so he says, man, if, that, if, if you know that and that gets a hold of your heart, this is, this is your response. This is the normal, healthy response. I appeal to you. Therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable 
acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. It's your spiritual worship. We have a, a 5G process here at Desert Breeze to help people become fully devoted followers of Christ. It's, it's the really kind of more of the, uh, uh, the, the first four are the outer essence of worship. The last one is the inner essence of worship of these 5Gs. For the first G is a genuine Christian. That's someone who's made a commitment to Christ into a local church family and they make that public through water baptism. And so this person is, is walking with God. The second G is a, is a growing Christian. So if you're a genuine Christian, you're going to want to be a growing Christian. And you're going to be committed to the disciplines necessary for spiritual growth, which would be hanging out with other Christians, small group, life group, uh, reading your Bible, praying, coming to church regularly. And so you're going to walk with God. That's the first G. Second G, you're going to live his word. Your life is going to be more and more shaped by his word. And then if you're a genuine Christian, you're going to be a growing Christian. And if you're a genuine and growing Christian, you're going to be a giving Christian. It's going to be the overflow of your life. And you're going to make a commitment to use your time and your talent and your treasures to support your local church family. And if you're genuine, you'll be growing. If you're growing, you'll be giving. And if you're giving, you're going to be going. That's the fourth G. You're going to want to share your faith with others. If you don't want to share what you have with others, it's because what you have isn't very potent. And man, you're missing out, I'm telling you. Because when you walk in vital union and communion with him, it will overflow your heart in what you say and what you do. So the problem isn't try to correct what you're saying or correct what you're doing. No, go back to your heart, the inner essence of worship. Oh my goodness, bask, bask in his greatness and goodness. It will transform your life. I had, uh, oh, the, oh the, the fifth G. Genuine growing, giving, going, those are, the inner, uh, those are the outer essence of worship, but the inner essence of worship is glorifying God. You live for his glory. You do all of that for his glory. I have a missionary friend who went to Bangladesh, India, and almost died. And he really messed up his health really badly. I told him how amazing it was that he would sacrifice his life for Christ in the gospel. And he said, actually, I didn't sacrifice anything. It was my pleasure. I mean, that had a really powerful impact on my life. His love and satisfaction in Christ were visible by the fruit of his lips and the fruit of his deeds. Now remember, sacrifice is giving up something you love for something you love more. And he loved Christ more. He loved those people more that they would know about Christ. Therefore, he was willing to even sacrifice his own life, his health, for the cause of Christ. So accusation, half-hearted worship, evidence, not giving your best. Here's the judgment. Your worship is vain. It's empty. Verse 10. Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. That's my greatest fear right there. My greatest fear is that God would say to us at Desert Breeze, I have no pleasure in you, and I will not accept your offerings. Your worship is in vain. And as long as I'm connected to this church, I'm going to do everything I can to not let that ever happen. And... Um, I plan on being here for a long, long time, okay? You guys are going to probably have to bury me, okay? 
but, but I don't ever, I don't want to ever he- hear that from the Lord about us. Remember, we don't obey and serve him to get his acceptance and blessing. We obey and serve him because in Christ we, we are accepted and blessed. But it is an offense to him when we respond to his acceptance and blessing with spiritual apathy and cynicism, and that's what they're doing here. And then he repeats the judgment in verse 14a. Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. It's kind of like the story of a farmer whose prized cow had twin calves and in his excitement came into his home and told his wife, Uh, told his wife, and then she said to him, because of this blessing, you should give one to the Lord, and we can keep the other one for ourselves. And so he agreed immediately, but took some time to make the decision as to which calf would be his and which one would belong to the Lord. And after a few weeks, one of the young calves fell sick, became very ill, And the farmer spent the night caring for it. And the next morning, the farmer entered the house and was met by his wife who asked, what happened? And with a voice filled with sorrow, he responded, the Lord's calf died. That's what's interesting. And that's, that's exactly what they're saying here. Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. I mean, that's how the people in Malachi's day were giving, and it's easy for us to do the same. Here's the next uh, points on your notes. Our, our sinful tendency is to worship our work, work at our play, and play at our worship. We worship our work, work at our play, and play at our worship. So uh, Matthew 6, 21, where your treasure is, that is where your heart will be also. So what you are treasuring, that's, it's going to capture your heart. It's going to dominate your thoughts, stir your emotions, your deepest emotions, and move you to action. And, and, and there's nothing wrong with having good things in our lives, but not allowing those to take Christ's place. Because it says, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God, 1 Corinthians 10, 31. So as you enjoy, you know, the pumpkin loaf, you can do that to the glory of God because you don't let your praise and adoration terminate on the pumpkin loaf. You let it roll on up to God who's, who's even of greater delight and more satisfying than any pumpkin loaf could ever be. So you live your life in such a way, it's all about him. You realize that everything that you have is a gift from God and a pointer back to him as an opportunity for, for praise and adoration to him. And, and I think it, it makes the experience even greater. And uh, it makes that pumpkin loaf taste even better when you honor him with that. The opposite of worshiping God is idolatry. If Christ is not at the center of your life, then something else is. So if your heart isn't swept away by the boundless and irresistible love of God, then it will be swept away by something much, a much lesser love. So here's some questions just to think about here. Let me walk through these questions that will help you to uncover uncover your idols, my idols, is who or what do I make sacrifices for? Who or what is most important to me? If I could have anything or experience what I wanted, what would that be? Who or what makes me the most happy? 
What is the one person or thing I could not live without? What do I spend my money on? Who or what do I devote my spare time to? So the answer to all of those questions should be Christ Jesus. But oftentimes we have other things that are there. So how serious of a problem is this? I gave you a list. It's on your notes. How serious of a problem is this? There are whole books of the Bible giving us details of heartfelt worship. Exodus, remember, let my people go so that they can worship me. And then you've got Leviticus that goes into detail over that. The largest book in the Bible is a, is a manual on worship. What's the largest book in the Bible? Anybody? Psalms, yes. And C.S. Lewis put it this way, God in the Psalms is the all-satisfying object. He is the source of complete and unending pleasure. First four of the Ten Commandments are about worship. Leviticus 10, Nadad and Abihu offer unauthorized fire before the Lord in which he had not commanded them and fire came out from the Lord and consumed them. That was not a very good day at church. 2 Samuel 6, the ark of the Lord is being brought back to Israel and the oxen stumble and Yuza tries to, to steady the ark and he is struck dead immediately because of his error. And oftentimes people will read that and go, oh my goodness, God is so harsh. No, 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 no. You don't understand his holiness or your sinfulness. You're out of touch. And that's what it's telling us in Revelation 3, 15 through 16. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Your lukewarmness is nauseating is what he's saying here. That's, that's from Christ Jesus. So what, is it, what does it look like to to not worship in vain or have a half-hearted worship to God. Let me give you an illustration here. A year ago, this last October, we got dressed up and I took my beautiful bride to her favorite restaurant, The Henry. And it's, uh, it was for our, for our 41st wedding anniversary. And let's just say, let's just say, while we were eating our dinner, Nancy looks across the table and she says to me, um, my handsome husband. You guys weren't supposed to laugh at that. She's, she's never actually said that, but it's not too late for her to take that up and begin to say, say that. Nancy, did you hear that? And, uh, and she, but she, she, she's just, you know, she's just loving on me, and she says, she says this, why would you take out time in your busy schedule and go to such expense to take me to my favorite restaurant on our anniversary. Anybody familiar with that Toyota commercial where the guy says, I know there's a right answer in there somewhere. <laughs> you guys know what I'm talking about there? So that's me, I know there's a right answer in there somewhere. And so let's just say, what if I were to say to her, because it's my duty, I read it in a book, that's what husbands do. How, how do you think that would make her feel? What if instead of saying that, I were to say this to her, I were to look my beautiful girl in the eyes and say, 
I love you. And there's nothing I would rather do than to spend time with you because it makes me very, very, very happy. Would that be better? Yeah, much better. What if she were to say, it would make you happy? All you ever think about is what makes you happy. What about me, your wife? Do you think she would say that? I had someone yell out in the service last night, no, because she's too nice. That's what, that's what, and that's true. That's true. No, because, and that not only is she too nice, but because Nancy is most honored in me when I am most happy in her. And so is God. And so is God. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. We want him more than anything. That's my heart cry. Week in and week out, I tell you about that. I want you to know him. I want you to love him. I want you to worship him. I want you to experience him. There's nothing better. There's absolutely nothing better. And uh, don't go to church, serve in ministry, attend a life group, read your Bible, and pray because that's your Christian duty, but because it's your greatest delight to know God and make him known. You don't do it because you have to. You do it because you want to. And then your worship is not in vain. You want to honor him. You want to glorify him. You fear him. You don't despise his name. You honor his name. So accusation, half-hearted worship, evidence, not giving your best judgment. Your worship is vain. It's empty. Here's the rationale. This is where we end. The rationale. Our worship should be as glorious. Notice that. As glorious as the one we worship. So how glorious is God? He's pretty glorious. So our worship should try to match that. It never will. But boy, is it fun trying to really celebrate his goodness. Psalm 66.2 says, Give to him glorious praise. So the next verses, the last of these verses here where he gives the rationale, um, this is where history is headed. History is his story. And uh, this is either the millennial reign of Christ or the new heavens and the new earth. And believe me, you want to be on the right side of history because there are really only two choices when it's all said and done at the end of history. You'll either, it'll, it'll either be eternal celebration with God for worshipers of him, of the creator, or eternal separation from God for worshipers of created things. Listen to what he says in verse 11. What he's saying here, this is normal, this would be normal Christianity. This would be healthy understanding of God and an accurate uh, and a healthy valuing of his supreme worth. And he says, for from the rising of the sun to its setting, so all day long, my name will be great among the nations and in every place incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. And then he repeats the rationale in verse 14 
B, the second part of 14, he says, for I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts. The, the Lord of hosts is used 24 times in this short letter, this short book, in these four chapters, 24 times. And then he says, and my name will be feared among the nations. The word Lord means Yahweh, comes from I am that I am, personal covenant name for God. And then host is heavenly armies, multitudes of warriors, and uh, he's just describing that God is good and God is great. All of heaven and earth are under God's loving, wise command. Everything, everything is under his loving, wise command. That's what he's saying. Don't you realize I'm in command of all of the armies, even on this planet. I'm the one that tells them what they're going to do and what they're not going to do. And that's what he's talking about. He's talking about his sovereignty. And, uh, and there's much more I could talk about that. Let me give you the next couple fill in the blanks. Nothing is more faith fortifying, soul satisfying, and life liberating than seeing what God is worth and giving to him what he is worth. And then when our worship is as glorious as the one we worship, it will attract even those whose hearts are hardened toward God. Now to prepare our hearts for communion here this morning, I'm gonna read to you one of my favorite quotes from Charles Spurgeon in a sermon he preached when he was just 20 years old. So uh, he's, he's really worshiping. He's helping us to worship through this. But let me read through this, and this will help to prepare our hearts, and then we'll move right into, into communion. The highest science, the, loft, the loftiest speculation, the mightiest philosophy which can ever engage the attention of a child of God is the name, the nature, the person, the work, the doings, and the existence of the great God whom he calls his father. There's something exceedingly improving to the mind in a contemplation of the divinity. It is a subject so vast that all our thoughts are lost in its immensity, so deep that our pride is drowned in, in, in its infinity. No subject of contemplation will tend more to humble the mind, humble the mind than thoughts of God. But while the subject humbles the mind, it also expands it. He who often thinks of God will have a larger mind than the man who simply plods around this narrow globe. The most excellent study for expanding the soul is the science of Christ and him crucified and the knowledge of the Godhead and the glorious Trinity. Nothing will so enlarge the intellect, nothing so magnify the soul of a man as a devout, earnest, continued investigation of the great subject of the deity. And while... It is humbling and expanding. This subject is eminently consoling. Oh, there is in contemplating Christ a balm for every wound. In reflecting on the Father, there is a calming and comfort for every grief. And in the influence of the Holy Spirit, there is a healing salve for every sore. Do you want to lose your sorrows? Do you want to drown your cares? then go plunge yourself in the Godhead's deepest sea. Be lost in his immensity, and you shall come forth as from a couch of rest, refreshed and invigorated. I know nothing which can so comfort the soul, so calm the swelling billows of grief and sorrow, so speak peace to the winds of trial as a devout meditating upon the subject of the Godhead. Let's do that now through communion.
We have three stations. And when there's one in our breezeway, make your way up to one of these stations, grab both of the cups, take it back to your seat, and I will walk us through the process this morning.